0: Hi folks, Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting and consulting firm, RiderFlex. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. And if you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on the episodes. Finally, aside from our podcast, our day job here at RiderFlex is to provide recruiting, staffing, and consulting services. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get the information on the services we provide. And now a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360.
1: Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand.
0: Larry Hartman on the Rider Flex Podcast. Hi, Larry. How are you?
1: Hey, Steve. Good. How are you? What part of Florida are you in today? Uh, We have an office in Boca Raton, and it's uh, usually sunny here, so it's uh, another one of those great days in Florida. Mm, I've been there many times. That is uh, not a bad
0: place to be as December and January approach. Exactly. (laughs) That's the idea. I remember the first time I went to South Florida in the wintertime. Uh, when I was a younger uh, manager, and I thought, oh, okay, now I know why people come to South Florida in the winter. Is that where you're at full
1: time? Is that where you're at full
0: time, or just just for
1: now, or you kind of move around? That's right, I'm in the winter. I mean, I've got a home up in uh, uh, North Jersey, New York area. So, but over time, just figured out there's no reason not to be where the weather's nice in the winter months. And so for our business, it's pretty pretty spread out around the world so i can be anywhere with the good internet so it worked out great awesome give the listeners a little background
0: about uh, larry hartman personally before we get into business if you don't mind where you grew up maybe some family stuff mom dad siblings give us give us some early life
1: stuff if you don't mind yeah happy to so uh Born and raised in California, Southern California. Uh, so that's probably why I, I tend to return to warm weather. So I, I miss it and I've been 30 years in California, uh, went to Cal state Fullerton, got a business degree, um, got married, uh, been married now 30, 36 years. So Congrats. Got, yeah. Three boys spread all around the country. Uh, one's in, one's in Utah, one's in Denver, one's in New Jersey. And, uh, Personally, love to fish, love to golf, uh, love the outdoors, and big sports fan. So, I've been in New York area now 30 years, and you know, kind of now splitting that between Florida and New York a bit. So, how about your folks? Uh, are they still around? Have they passed? What's the story there? No, they're all uh, they're both passed on. So, okay. And what'd your what'd your dad do? He was uh, an accountant, and my mom was a church secretary. But you know, they had a. A coin laundromat in their spare time, so I grew up and they come home from work. We'd all go over and uh, spend our evenings uh, cleaning up wow. the coin laundry, emptying the change out, filling the soap machine. So it was a hard working kind of a you know, uh, I, I'd say a, a family that you know, didn't stop working, didn't take many vacations, and you know, just work hard to make ends meet. Kind of I see, I see. So that's where.
0: Is that where the whole finance and accounting and some of that stuff came into play early in your career because you were a numbers guy from your dad? Is that how that happened?
1: No. I mean, I actually started as an accounting major in school and after one accounting class when I couldn't find three cents for five hours at night, said, this is a bad area. And I switched <laughs> marketing. So, I mean, I, I certainly know my way around numbers, but I decided early on I was, you know, not following my father's footsteps. So. <laughs> accountants and uh, made them switch over to the uh, marketing side of things. Now, were you, uh, uh, how many siblings, I've got two sisters who both live out in California,
0: two sisters. Okay. So were you the good kid, the bad kid the, in, the, in the middle? Like where, where were no,
1: you? I was the, I was the young, I was the, the young son and it kind of got away with everything. So they were five and six years older. So I got kind of, you know, the good treatment they covered for me when I got in trouble and, you know, it's kind of <laughs> like they're, you know, it's, it's quite good being the youngest.
0: Wow. Uh, I mentioned, I saw something in your profile, faith-based. I saw some faith stuff. So, and then you just mentioned your mom's involvement in the church, and so I'm yeah. gonna get—I'm gonna guess a a fairly conservative household there. Probably not—not not, not a lot of drinking, smoking, and partying going on at your place, I don't think.
1: I'm just guessing. Yeah, no, I was raised in a Baptist family and very, yeah, very conservative. Yeah, in terms okay. of, of kind okay. of upbringing, and, and and yeah, certainly I think for me, you know, faith's a big part of who I am, and carried that forward, and it's uh, part of hopefully what what drives uh, you know happiness and success for me
0: uh even in college you didn't cut loose any you, you didn't oh make, yeah uh, well
1: for college years you get like a, a redo for those years <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I <don't> know. <laughs> i I'd say, you know certainly uh certainly that's that that was a different period but uh you know quickly step back. Uh, by the way
0: don't you don't you don't sometimes you kind of like man I wish I could go back and do that again that was kind
1: of <laughs> fun <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun I told my three boys you know those college years are as, as good as it gets you have no responsibilities it's nothing but fun go get some good grades and you know very, Yeah, I, I think it's uh, if you knew it then you probably would enjoy it a lot more but it is uh, Yeah, so, yeah. Did, did you meet your wife there I met her actually in college when I was working. She hired me for a for a sales job when I was a oh. college kid. So we oh, met. She was your, she was your boss. She was my boss. And oh, gee, uh, geez, yeah. this
0: is this is before HR cracked down on supervisors flirting with their employees. Yeah, no, that was
1: encouraged back then. That was kind of <laughs> the eighties. That stuff kind of worked back then. So right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh my God, I talk to people about that all the time. I always tell them, I'm like, look, man, I in the late eighties and early nineties when I was manager, there was. I mean, I mean the, the, the HR rules were so uh, yeah. non-existent or relaxed at that point for so many things. Anyway. Um, okay. So move us just a little bit uh, through your career a tad. And what I'm most, you don't have to go through everything, but what I'm really most interested in is is the switch, right? The uh, how how you made the jump over into, uh, you know, executive search, uh, but kind of give us an early, early
1: career. And then the jump, if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'll do that, Steve. So, you know, my first, first job out of college um, I started a company with two partners in the financial service space. And it was kind of interesting. It was, we didn't know anything about the business. We were lending money to doctors and hospitals to finance capital equipment. And uh, we ended up you know, successfully growing the business to about an $80 million revenue business 10 years wow. later. Wow. Wow. We had, we had this dream to take the company public, which we did. We ended up trading on the NASDAQ. And I was nice. A, Thirty-four-year-old kid flying to Europe on the Concorde, doing a road show, just thinking America is a great country. You can- awesome. Nothing about a business started, so we, we ended up getting in public and traded it as a NASDAQ firm for three years. Got it to about two hundred million in revenues, and then we sold it to America Express. Wow, so,
0: that's yeah. okay. That's what happened. Okay. Congratulations, yeah. by the way. Yeah, that's
1: <laughs> great. It was doing from startup, fast-growing private company, Rink 500, public company, and then nice. ultimately the sale. And so the only time I really worked for somebody was the three years when American Express you know, owned me and I signed my life away and gave them my three years. And that was kind of chapter one. And then I took some time off, thought I might retire and golf every day, but my wife had better ideas that that wasn't what I was going to spend my days doing. She gave me to-do lists that were not as much fun as golfing every day. So... <laughs> decided i had to get back to work after about a year and uh but i had a non-compete in the lending space like forever and so i see, I the, see. The entry in the search was you know i started doing um executive recruiting and consulting in that financial service niche i came at. i see so I, had, right. I knew the business knew the roles you know had got a good role with mm-hmm. X, so that was kind of an easy transition about 20 years ago so that's, that's how that's how zrg kind of started from a you know, switching from a a lending business to a human capital business. And are you the founder? Are you a founder at ZRG then? Yeah. So I founded a partner, uh, Ken Vancini started it. He worked for me previously and then I joined him about a year into the business. It was small then about five employees and and I bought in and he and I were 50, 50 owners um, of the business, you know, and, and, you know, grown it and gone through a couple of evolutions of ownership and structure since then.
0: Are you in charge? Are you captain right now of the cap cap table or what's the ownership look like?
1: Yeah. So through the years, I mean, and I'll just give you the quick ZRG story. So, you know, started 20 years ago, um, I'd say a lifestyle business the first 12, 13 years. We were 25 employees. Um, I ended up deciding to raise some capital about six, seven years ago. brought in a PE firm and bought out my partner. Um, He just wasn't in the same mindset to want to scale and grow. And I was really ready to put my foot on the accelerator. So we brought in our first PE firm. Uh, we grew from like nine million to thirty-eight million the next four years. Nice. Took them out. Yeah, we brought in a second PE firm, RFE Investments, and a pension fund. Actually, the state of Missouri's pension fund invested, and that was three years ago. And and, and they invested. We were about thirty-eight million in revenues, and this year will be about one hundred and forty million. So about three hundred and fifty employees around the world. So we, we we've been able to really take advantage of. Accessing capital and scaling the business, and you know we've been a—it's been a been a whole lot of fun. The last six, seven years have been just a different trajectory. We're back, growing things. Congratulations, my friend. So only had to deal with two
0: PE firms through all of that. That's it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very, I mean, very nice. Yeah.
1: yeah. So okay,
0: can you share? Can you share the the current PE firm that invested? Can you
1: share that, or is that, is RFE, that- RFE Investments out of New Canaan, Connecticut? State of Missouri's pension fund invested uh, were the two primary investors. Okay, um, that, that in, you know got involved in the company about three years ago. So. Gotcha. Okay, very good. I mean, so it sounds to
0: me like you had this nice lifestyle business going on with your partner, which this is what happens to so many boutique recruiting firms, right? Yeah, the, the, uh, you know a single person or a couple or a couple of people they get it going. Yeah, they're you know they're making one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars a year. Maybe they're making two hundred grand a year. They're like, yeah, I'm good, you know, and they just kind of cruise along and they don't they don't want to mess with it. Um, But then there are guys that uh, grew a company before and sold it and have that bug inside them like you did from your earlier history. And you're like, ah, it could be more exciting than that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I had the lifestyle business for a decade, right? I mean, so yeah. I saw every one of my kids' games. It's a great business. I had three right. boys playing sports and didn't right. miss a game and was able to be there while they grew up. But then, you know, off they went and, you know, I had this itch that, you know, it's great growing things, you know, and, yeah. but it, it is, it involves taking some risk, you know, it involves giving up mm. control and involves, you know, some things that you got to be comfortable doing. And so, you know, for me, I was in a spot where rolling the dice was, you know, it wasn't a difficult decision. It was a lot of fun. You know, I see
0: this all the time, Larry, where I talk to people that own firms in Colorado because we're I'm based in Colorado. We have recruiters all over, but um, we're based here and I'm always talking to other boutique owners and and I, you know, over coffee or whatever, happy hour. I'm always saying, hey, look, let's 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 do something together. Let's let's partner. Let's let's if we put five or six of these boutique firms together. We have a 50 million dollar firm in Colorado yeah. like, pretty fast. and yeah. i'm I'm amazed at, at how often people just don't they just don't want to. I, I think they're they want to do their own thing. they think their process is the best way. They're already making the two hundred thousand a year. they got their egos in check because they want to be captain. so they just don't want to talk about it. I, I'm amazed at that.' I, <laughs> I've, I've, so congratulations uh on getting it to where you have I think it's very difficult I think it's very difficult to get a boutique lifestyle firm to the volume you have it at right now congratulations yeah, it is. now. And, and
1: we've been through the cycle. I mean, I've bought five search firms in the last three years. So, you know, nice. we've been out in the market, you know, that you know, part of our growth has been organically hiring. The other part has been finding niche search businesses that kind of fit mm-hmm. what we're doing. So, we bought some interesting mm-hmm. businesses. We bought one in the sports recruiting space that does really. Nice fun stuff around head coaches and, you know, they're, they're doing roles like the head, you know, the commissioner right. of, the Pac- of the Pac-12. We did Atlanta Falcons head coaching search. We did, you know, we moved Texas head coach, Steve Sarcasian to Alabama and the, you know, in, from Alabama to Texas. So it's like fun stuff. And we got an entertainment business that, you know, we work with like a Viacom. Nice. We placed the two co-presidents of CBS. And so, you know, we got all these you know, interesting niches and, and some of those niche businesses fit well within what we do. So we've been able to find businesses that, you know, that kind of could benefit from being part of a bigger platform. What makes uh, ZRG special compared to other,
0: you know, big executive search firms, what makes you different and special?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, in our space, we're at the senior level executive recruiting space doing CEO board and kind of high end retained search work. And, you know, our competition is these big five corn Ferry, hydro Spencer players we're mm-hmm. unique in that we're mid-size and we're global. So we've got offices around Europe, Asia, um, you know, South America. And so we can be an alternative to the corn fairies and hydrics and scale a relationship globally. And then we've invested in some cool technology. So we, we have our own kind of tech platform that ah. enables hiring decisions, much like in lending used to enable credit decisions. And so we've got mm-hmm. a bunch of information we gather in the search process that drives making a hiring decision. So we've invested pretty significantly in a tech platform that goes on top of the search work we do, which is is a bit of a unique value proposition that clients find. <sighs> like. nice.
0: Oh, uh, was that, okay, so that was a big
1: part of the valuation number when the PE firm invested? Yeah, was I, this, mean, was this technology? Tricky, right? I mean, it's tricky, right? We're a human capital business relying on people. When hmm. PE looks at firms in our space, they want to know, is it more than just, you know, right. what's the what's the firm value and going right. on? Uh, you know, the assets that go in and out of the elevator every day that could leave. And so, you, you know, he, it's a challenge for businesses like ours to show that you've got, you know, um, some institutional equity in terms of what you're building. That's why I'm so impressed with the cash that you've raised.
0: We've been called a couple of times and we're, we're just a small boutique firm. We'll, we'll do probably a million five this year, but yeah. we got a couple, we got a couple of phone calls and um, you know, their, their first question is what's the tech play? What's the database play? What's, yeah you know i'm like well i'm not really a software company but
1: <laughs> yeah. now people look for different if you're going to go raise money there's got to be differentiation and a really yes. scale, which is hard right you know it's it's as you try to grow and scale year over year it's it's not easy and, you know, no. so I think for me, having capital just allowed me to invest in what I needed to do to build out a team to ensure yes, every yes. year we're hiring 15, 20 new builders, we're acquiring things. And, and so it's, you know, it's, other than that, it, when you're light on capital and you're a founder doing work yourself and growing a business, it's a lot of hats to wear. You, you got that
0: right. You got that right. I feel it every day. <laughs> yeah. uh, let me. Um, so how many employees did you say? 300? About 350. Wow. That's, that's really, that's outstanding. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Um, by the way, for the listeners, before I start asking you some other questions, I want to get your advice on some stuff just real quick. I want to get this in there. It's zrgpartners.com, uh, is where you can go uh, to look up all the awesome stuff uh, about Larry and his team. Great website, by the way. Very, very nice. Um, and Larry Hartman is also of course on LinkedIn. You can uh, ping him there. And Larry told me before we started recording that he loves getting little sales messages uh, from from, <laughs> from from chat bots. So make sure you ping him with yeah. a bunch of notes. <laughs> Always a treat for every morning to start your day. <laughs> so funny! I do the same thing. I wake up right away. I'm like, okay, let me delete these 20 sales messages. Yeah. Um, let me ask you. I want to get into some uh, candidate stuff here. How important are soft skills right now compared to? specific experiences or, uh, you know, uh, skill sets. Um, would you, would you, would you rate soft skills higher if you had to force rank, uh, experiences on a resume versus people skills?
1: I mean, I, the way we think about it in our side, I mean, the client's going to start with, I want these eight critical experiences, right? I need a CFO with 20 years experience who knows industrial, that's been through this, this, and this, right? So, I mean, I'd start with, yeah. First, you have to have the technical background. You know, without that, um, you're not getting in the door. Once you're in the door, I think certainly how you stand out through those soft skills is pretty important. and, and uh, But without that, I mean, I still think, you know, experience, experience in our world, experiences of, you know, checking the box of the eight things a client's looking for, which, as you know, gets very specific in terms of, you know, their laundry list of what they'd like to have in the dream candidate kind of starts the conversation. Once you're through that, then the soft skills start to have a much bigger impact. Do you guys check social media for candidates? Do you look through and like, okay, let me
0: make sure this this candidate's not a psycho on Facebook or random oh, yeah. about some I mean, crazy stuff? You certainly do.
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, doing <laughs> Google searches and just putting names in, you find you know a lot of stuff will pop up to make sure there's no surprises when you get to that point. But you know, we also see. I mean, the background checks. I mean, we'll do our reference checking and work. Mm-hmm. But a lot of our clients do their own as well. I mean, they're you know, well, you know, if they're hiring a CEO or CFO, they're going to put it through a pretty extensive process. Absolutely. On the phone. So I think it's, that's a team sport, you know, background checking is us and the clients and understanding what, what they're going to do so we don't replicate kind of what's happening on both sides.
0: For the listeners out there, you know, I know ZRG recruits people that are already in the executive space most of the time, but if you're listening to this episode and you're a middle manager or an early stage manager and you want to reach C-level at some point, You need to be careful right now today, starting right now, you need to be careful about what you do with social media because it could later come back to haunt you and it could affect hiring decisions on the other side. I see it all the time. No, exactly. Uh, and I have
1: that discussion with people that are just friends you're trying to guide and just say, listen, you need to be Switzerland when it comes to. Exactly. because <laughs> Bingo. You're, yeah, you're, you're going to alienate half the world with what you say. And then and you want to put yourself in a spot where you're 50% of the opportunities you're not going to get because of a stance you have. And that's personal. Let's keep business business and that's personal. And you know, that's typically my advice. I know people can get passionate about causes, but at the same time, you know, business is business, right? And so I think that's, you know, certainly how I would guide if it was talking to a, you know, a, a, a friend and trying to give them career advice. And I've done that where I've seen postings and things going on LinkedIn where you say, listen, you're not doing yourself any favors. You know, you're just, you know, <laughs> exactly. you don't to do that. You know, you said it so well, Larry, and
0: I have said the same thing. I tell people all the time. I said, look, look, here's the deal. I don't care what the topic is, whatever the hot topic is going on in the country. Hmm. Most of the time it's 50 50 or close to it. Right. Maybe it's 60 40 sometimes or whatever. But to your point, whatever the topic is, you're going to piss off half of your audience. If you start saying dumb shit on online And so I yeah, I could not agree more. And I've said the exact same thing. Switzerland, I like that by the way. I'm gonna gonna, gonna use that from now on. (laughs) Yeah,
1: nice neutral country, never gets in a war, doesn't have any enemies. You know, there's something good about
0: that. You know, (laughs) I've had I've had people, I've had guests on the podcast challenge me on that. They're like, Well, you know, you have a podcast and you're a CEO of a small business, it's your responsibility. I love it, I love that word, by the way. It's your responsibility to speak up and blah blah blah. And I and I I say, look. Hey, we're, I'm a million, we're a million five firm. I need, I need all the customers I can get. I'm not, I'm not trying to make anybody mad on either side. Yeah. That's what I always yeah. tell yeah. <laughs> Um so, so, yeah. So CEOs speaking out for companies and taking sides on social media, on, on issues that that's, I just, I think that's crazy. I, I, I just, I don't advise it. <laughs>
1: No, and I think, yeah, you see it. I mean, with Twitter and Jack Dorsey, I mean, you know, I mean, and, and in that world, certainly they take strong views on things. But I think in general, when we're doing searches, they want to find, you know, backgrounds that aren't going to offend half their employee base. <laughs> exactly. Company, right. Half your employees are Democrat and Republican. Half, you know, you got that's to- right vaccinated you've got so many issues that you know you 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 can't always be an effective leader when posing your personal views on things that don't relate to the business so i oh, you
0: know, couldn't agree I, more. couldn't agree this, more you know, uh that that is great that is great input great advice larry thank you for sharing that how how important is linkedin to to you and your team do you do you rate it as important as the resume What what are your thoughts there
1: Yeah, it's important to find people. I mean, I think, you know, in the sense of being found, you know, it's great. You find, you know, you you find what a client's looking for to come up with a target list through LinkedIn, right? And so I think, you know, certainly if I was giving advice to middle management, you know, people early in their careers, it's, you know, your LinkedIn profile is probably way more important than the resume, because if you want to be found for opportunities, that's how recruiters are going to find you. And they're going to find you through... Keywords, right? You're gonna have you need to have the keywords that they're plugging in to locate you to be able to get in the game. So I think without it, you're you're not in the game. I mean, you're 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 on the outside, and and it would just look strange. I mean, you know, today how often do you find someone where you can't find them on LinkedIn? When you can't find them, it's it's like a red flag. Like, yeah. what, what? Why is this person off the grid? The grid. I mean, <laughs> it's become that mainstream, right? So, I told I
0: tell people the same thing. I say, look, by the way, when I'm talking to a client if 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 i'm getting ready to present a candidate to a client by the time i say hey mrs client listen i want to introduce you to johnny brown i'm going to send you the information on johnny brown before i'm finishing the sentence they're typing the name into linkedin and pulling the 100%. profile up right yeah yeah i mean it's very and then and then what happens my advice for the listeners on this episode is then what happens is if your linkedin is bad i think you take the risk of the of the hiring manager getting an early negative impression of you uh that is that is unnecessary so don't don't let that happen because even if your resume is great they've already they've already made some quick judgments in their head head about you because they glanced at your LinkedIn profile which is why I think it's so important it is um okay let me ask you this uh most difficult position in the country to recruit for right now I think I I mean I have my answer but I just want to see if
1: yours is the same or similar yeah I mean we do a lot of life science work so I just say, we get some really hard searches where they want a chief medical officer that knows a very specific drug therapy that's got to move to a very specific location. And there's 12 people in the world that have done that <laughs> job, <right>? Like, <laughs> that's hard, you know? So I'd say, you know, on the technical side of high-end recruiting, you know, and life science is a big sector for us. We get some pretty difficult roles on that side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, functionally, I think what you're asking, you know, maybe, I mean, it's not hard to, it's not hard to recruit CEOs. I mean, CFOs right now a lot of cfo work are in demand they're you know it's tougher to get them to move in 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 the market right now but Mm -hmm. i'd say it's you know more of the technical difficult roles i mean we get once in a while we'll get VP director of engineering searches on the Mm -hmm. software side those are challenging Um, yes 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 you know um
0: Hey, I know there's a lot of uh, software engineers and data scientists probably listening to this episode as we move along, and uh, I know I know you guys are all awesome, but I'm just telling you, your, your, your day of the day of reckoning is coming, where you will not be as valuable when 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 robots start writing code. <laughs> uh, full stack developers may not be uh, as cocky as they are right now. Yeah. yeah um what what about this uh what about this great resignation uh uh, you know term that i keep hearing and seeing in the news just what are your thoughts about the topic
1: well i don't know what you're seeing in your business but we're seeing across the retained search side it is the busiest year in 20 years i've ever seen there's more work going on there's more opportunity and so you know i think a couple factors you've got executives changing jobs more often for us just creates more work you know the average tenure of a CEO now is you know down from what it used to be almost in half in the number of years CFO so what is, is it three is it three three and a half or what is it yeah, four, four and a half years, okay. Seven, okay. 10 years ago, oh. whatever, it was eight, 10 years, right? And so, you know, every role, people are more apt to change more frequently, you know, and then you throw, you know, the the young millennials and Gen, Gen Zs in there, and, and two, you know, two years and change the job means nothing there, right? And in the days, you know, it, when I was growing up, that was a that was a crazy. mark where you would not get the interview because you change jobs too frequently. Yes. Now it's it's happening yep. all the time. So I think for us, there's just a lot more churn going on. Uh, there's wage inflation going on right now for the you know the the positions in demand. So you know there it's busy and and so uh, I think the great resignation I I think it's churning and changing and you, you know people just looked at themselves during the pandemic said, am I happy? Am I doing what I want? Am I being paid fairly? Like every one of those questions got asked and, you know, it's, people could, you know, resign or change jobs because of appreciation, compensation, burnout, and, you know, burnout became a factor, right? A lot of people mm-hmm. just decided to, to exit. And, and so you've got this aging out too. the baby boomer leadership side. There's some interesting right leadership. So I think for the next, you know, hopefully the for both of us next five years, you know, it should be the wind is at our backs in terms of recruiting, being a critical part of companies achieving their goals. And it's not easy to find, you know, find what people want, you know, in terms of the talent sets, it's competitive. I agree. The wind
0: is at our back right now. How long will that last with uh, technology and AI and, uh, you know, robots interviewing people, et cetera? How long do we have, Larry, before <laughs> artificial intelligence removes us from from all of this? What are, you, what are your thoughts there?
1: That's a good question. And, and I think You know, people said the same thing about LinkedIn, that LinkedIn would do away with the recruiting industry, yet, you know, the recruiting industry is, you know, $150 billion global industry. If you look at all the spread over the numbers, I mean, there's plenty of money being spent with recruiting firms globally at all levels. So it hasn't, it's just had the effect of making recruiters more effective. So, um, you know, I think those things will I think probably have the same effect. It's going to make it easier for recruiting firms to do a good job. Right. I mean, but for some reason, it's not eliminating the need for an outside provider to, to do the work. I, I do think at the lower levels, you know, the, the lower you go, probably there's more risk, you know, in terms of if you're looking at entry level out of college roles. I mean, I think there's probably going to be more automation and matching there, but I think as you get into specialized skills where there's shortage and you need persuasion to get people to move, you know, we're, we're, I think we're going to have a job for a while. Um, I agree. Because AI bots can't convince someone to talk to you, catch them at six o'clock at <laughs> night at their desk and open their mind that they should think about joining the great resign, which I think all of us do pretty effectively for our clients. Agreed. Yeah, I agree. I think AI helps us uh,
0: pull the good apples out of the basket. But but then from there, there's still human to human vetting that needs to happen and convincing and selling and relationships and all the rest of it. So yeah, you're right. I think I think it's just going to make our jobs easier and we can you know help us move faster, which it which it that's what it's done. So uh, agreed. How about this? Where's this remote thing going? Are are we are we going to live in a world now where it's hybrid remote or do you think do you think I I see lots of stuff in the press where some companies are pushing to go back, some are What are your thoughts and what are you doing uh at ZRG on this topic?
1: Yeah, so yeah i'd say start with us i mean we you know we're 350 people around the world in like 35 offices with lots of people working from home resource offices small hub offices so it for us where someone was located was always flexible um and like a lot of recruiting firms I think that was the case and you know we, all you needed was a computer internet and a phone and and that, that so that that hasn't you know for us it's been great i mean it's probably lowered rent costs and where our margins are bigger because we have less rent now mm-hmm. than we would have had two years ago. Mm-hmm. But, but I think our clients, you know, there, there's a missing part to that. I mean, we're even seeing in our organization, leadership is coming back to offices. I mean, to be around growing a company with your leadership team not together is a disadvantage. And, and so, you know, I think when you look at, you know, kind of the the, the, the positions, there'll be certain positions, I think that will now, they're never going to go back to five days in the office, but I think there'll be a push. Like we look five years out, it's probably going to be this hybrid of three days. You in the office three days you're you know home two days it's going to be a perk that people are fighting to keep right so mm-hmm. i think we'll, we'll end up somewhere in the middle but i think it'll tilt back the other way i mean at some okay. point people aren't going to enjoy living and working in the same room right i mean to me that is going to get old i mean it's something nice about leaving your home and going to an office and coming back to your home at night. it is nice if you don't have an hour and a half commute right <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, that's the opposite. You're right. If you're in New York and on a train, if you're in London and taking the tube, I mean, yeah, you know, there's there's certainly that two or three days a week is probably where it ends up. So, okay, very good. What? How about COVID? Uh, let me ask you
0: first. What's ZRG doing, if you don't mind sharing, with regards to rules on masks and vaccinations? What What are you doing as a company, and where do you see that going uh, with with companies? You know, and you can tie that into the whole Biden thing that was supposed to come out uh, first of January. If you can just walk me through some of that, uh, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, right now it's optional to be in an office for folks at ZRG and those who want to be in or in and those that want to be at home or at home, um, you know, we will look to have a couple days back in the office is, is kind of the norm as soon as it feels safe to do that. And, you know, we're, we're certainly watching what the requirements are. I mean, you know, Biden's put a, you know, if you have over a hundred employees, some testing requirements and some, you know, some rules in place that we're watching and, you know, it's forced us to look at, okay, we've got to buy new software to track things and, and do things. So I think we're, you know, we're going to be compliant with what the rules are. Uh, but I'm not so clear those rules are going to pass. I mean, there's a lot of complication, right? You've got mm-hmm. workers working from home, and yeah, I'm sure it's all clear how, how the guidelines that have been put out there are going to be implemented on smaller businesses. And I, mm-hmm. I think it's probably harder on a 100-person company or 200-person company to comply with a bunch of, uh, of rules imposed by the government on that than it would be for a, you know, a, a Goldman Sachs or a GE might you know, in terms of, of implementing it sounds like what
0: I heard you say is uh, you're you're in a little bit of a holding pattern to see what see what happens with this Biden thing.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I think, and I think I think once it's safe, I mean, once, yep. yep. once everybody feels say we're not pushing anybody if they're not safe to travel or but you know, we're having company meetings, we're out seeing clients, we're on planes, uh, you know, but if someone is not, that's fine. I mean, we respect that. So it's we're leaving it up to the individuals to decide what their comfort level is.
0: Um, I like that. Um, and uh, I do agree with what you just said. I, you know, if I'm in Vegas and you're asking me to put my chips down on, on red or black, you know, whether or not this Biden thing will pa- pass, I, I, I don't, I, I don't see it. I don't see it happening. I think there's just way too much, comp- too many complications, too much pushback from States and different things. I, it, you know, for sure it'll get punted down the, down the, down the road, uh, whether or not it actually passes. I, I yeah, we'll see. We'll see. And I, and I feel a lot of companies doing that. Almost every CEO I've talked to, everybody's kind of just like, okay, let's just hold, let's just hold and see, see what happens
1: here. <laughs> yeah. but we're seeing, I'm sure you're seeing this too. The, the flip side of that is we've got clients now that want to know vaccination statuses on candidates, right? Yes, so, so yes. That- you know, again, you know, we're not asking unless a client says we will not interview someone who's not vaccinated. We won't hire someone who's not vaccinated. It's like, okay, now you have a difficult discussion where, mm-hmm. you know, 20% of the workforce doesn't want to do that. And so, you know, it's not us pushing, you know, one way or another, but we, you know, we're servants of our clients, right? I mean, what they want, we're looking to find for them. And so that's been interesting to see. There are some companies taking a different stance, you know, it's not, mm-hmm. there's not one answer to this this issue. So uh,
0: well said. And we at RiderFlex have been playing the Switzerland role when it comes to COVID. I, I've told the team and the recruiters, I said, hey, look, we, we as a company do not have a stance either way. What we do is we represent our clients. If this client wants us to ask that question, we will. And if this other client doesn't care about it, then we won't. That's
1: we're doing the same thing. Yeah, but it's coming up. I mean, I'm surprised. I mean, how many companies are now. You know, they're not interviewing if someone's not vaccinated or hiring. And so, you know, that's, you know, eventually see where this all shakes out. I think six yeah. months, 12 months, I will have a better view. In the meantime, it's, you know, a lot of things changing on the fly, you know, for all of us. Yeah. My,
0: my prediction is, I mean, there's, you know, people are, every, especially at the lower uh, ranking jobs or the lower paying jobs, there's so many uh, short staffed situations going on. And I mean, every, every store you go by, they're short staffed. Uh, everybody needs more people. Um, I can promise you, or I, I can guarantee you the CEOs of some of these retailers that are short staffed. Now, the last thing they want to do is implement another rule. that's going to make them even more short staffed. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, so uh, my wife works for a retailer that I won't mention on the call, but, uh, you know, she came home the other day. She's like, we're short 30 people. She goes, you know, it's Black Friday and we, we don't, we, we're down 30 people and, you you know if they try to enforce some other stuff we're gonna we're gonna be even more short-staffed. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so
1: you know. you're going to hotels you're going to restaurants and you know you got to be patient with mediocre and non-existent service a lot oh man yes all, you know I think people are, are pretty understanding of it but you know they, we got to get back to normal here so agreed.
0: agreed how about this uh, a few more questions diversity and inclusion is is a is a uh, sexy uh, topic and verbiage that a lot of companies, Talk about, and they put it on their websites, and you know they they want to they want to be um, recognized as um, waving that flag. Sometimes I feel like it's not sincere uh, from companies because they just want to you know act like they're on the wagon with everybody. What what does it really mean to ZRG, and 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 what are you what have you guys done to make sure that you're
1: uh, you know doing all the right things? Yeah. So I mean, I'd say again, if we take the client view of that and say, how do we address diversity, equity, inclusion in the work we do? And I'd say at the you know, CEO board level, it is literally every search has diverse a diverse slate of candidates to pick from. And they will not go through and make a CEO hire or a senior level higher without looking at a slate of candidates where they have um, options of diversity. And I think it's part okay. of, I think, you know, the, the positive push to say they're they're making sure that there's more opportunities for those that maybe wouldn't have had the opportunities 10 years ago. So, you know, I think it's created that the, the net effect of that is it's harder to do search work to find that, you know, chief medical officer who's got all the skills who's also a diverse candidate. But a client say we need to see diversity in the slate, So it actually makes search more valuable that we can dig hard to find that, you know, kind of needle in a haystack of a skill set that also is, is diverse. Um, so I, I think that's certainly part of it. We measure diversity with the work we do. We reward researchers in our team for finding diverse candidates on the target list. And so, you know, it's a proactive effort to find diverse candidates for clients. Um, that's part of it. You know, we hired a, we have a head of diversity, equity, inclusion, a woman we brought on, her name is Zing Sha. She was the former head of DEI for the Atlanta Hawks basketball team, Starbucks head of DEI, Marsh McLennan. And, and, and a lot of our clients want to talk about the problem. They want to talk about we've got issues. How do we address it um, beyond just, you know, give us diverse candidates? And so that's been helpful as well. She's quite a thought leader and it's helped some of the, you know, pretty big brands, deal with how do they systemically address um, changing the nature of the workforce. But it's a big topic. I mean, I think it's, you know, one that is, is making it harder for searches to, to get done in a short period of time because they want to see more, more candidate flow.
0: Have you ever been faced with this? This is a little more granular, question, but have you ever been faced with a situation, super tough search, very few people in, you know, in a certain state that have the skill set. client told you, look, I want to see, uh, diverse candidates. I want to see one Hispanic, one one black, one white, one one Asian, whatever. They, they told you specifically what they wanted to see. Have you been faced with that where you said, okay, I'm going to give you that, but they aren't as qualified on paper as what I could have given you over here.
1: Uh, have you been faced with that situation? How do you deal with that? Yeah. So sometimes to get diversity in a slate, you've got to look at Step up candidates or out-of-the-box candidates. So I'll give you an example. You know, I mean, you know, we've done work in Miami with some global companies that say we need a CFO that's Spanish speaking and we prefer a female, right? And and that's just what we want because it's we deal with Latam out of Miami, we're global. And so, you know, the world of of Hispanic CFOs that run billion-dollar companies the club is not very large, right? So we're gonna go out and identify you know, 40, 50 possible candidates. But the way we expand is we'll tell the client, listen, you may have to look at a controller stepping into becoming a CFO. You may have to look outside of industry and you may be in this industry, want someone out of that industry, we're gonna to have to go out of that area. We may have to look at exporting somebody globally into the role. I mean, so, you know, you're right. I mean, there, there's sometimes, you know, the, the talent pool dictates your sea of choices. And if you're going to find diversity, you've got to look outside of sometimes the ideas they have of, of what the profile would be. And I think clients now are pretty good about that. They'll say, fine, let's look at some maybe non-traditional backgrounds and, and consider that. Okay. And is
0: that okay for them? Is it okay for a client to say, I want a male, I want a female, I want a Hispanic female? Is that is that okay for them to say, to, to tell recruiting firms that?
1: Well, they may say we want diversity on the slate, and our preferences. we need Span. You know, I mean, we we're dealing with you know with, with South America. We need a Spanish-speaking CFO that can deal with our subsidiaries. I mean, it becomes a qualification for the role. Um, yeah, sometimes. I mean, you know, I think what we get too is we get. Talent mapping projects where they, you know, we had a big financial service client said, we want to look at digital talent, but you know, we've got to hire 20 digital VPs, but we want you to map out all of the diverse digital talent that fits this. Show us some mapping of the market. And so mm-hmm. we show them 100 potential mm-hmm. candidates. Then it's, okay, now we want you to recruit specifically out of this talent pool to fill these roles because we're not balanced enough. We, we need mm-hmm. to change makeup of our team. And so I think clients are pretty prescriptive around trying to address where, where the, maybe the nature of a team is, is not what they want it to be. And so mm-hmm. some of the tools around just, you know, mapping and, and identifying that we can do for a client help solve the problem. Mm.
0: Okay. Very good. I appreciate that, Larry. Uh, thank you. A few more, just a couple more questions here. I know we're getting close to wrap up. I see uh, articles and things come out on LinkedIn or in the press uh, around, let me give you two examples of something I saw recently. One was um, should companies give uh, paid leave if your pet dies? Uh, another one I saw recently was um, should companies be allowed to call employees after hours? There's a couple of, I saw an article on that. And I see these, Topics come up that to me as a small business owner, feel it feels like, okay, this is like a Google, Microsoft, IBM, Amazon. These are big company people who live in an HR world that come up with these things that sound really cool. But if you're a small business owner, which is the majority of the country, by the way, if you're a small business owner, you're like, like, what? What are you talking about? Like, I'm, I'm just trying to survive on cash flow here. Don't, don't be rolling out more rules on me. <laughs> uh, thoughts around some of the uh, pusher on things like that, and how it affects small yeah. business. Any comments?
1: Yeah, it doesn't. Work. I mean, you know, having built two businesses from zero to scale, and when you're Small, I mean, having a person or two leave a team when you have 10 or 20 people is a huge hardship. And it's difficult. You can't just replace that person. So, you know, I mean, I think that, I mean, I saw one today and Goldman announced they've changed the policy that if a family member dies, there's three weeks of paid leave for an employee. Like there's, I mean, it seems to be really moving into, you know, like you say, not just, you know, a a bunch of reasons why you can have time off to deal with personal issues. And so um, it's catch 22. I mean, right. I mean, it's great if you're a big company and you can absorb that. Exactly. Right? I mean, and you've got backup people that can step into a role. It's a whole lot easier when, when you're a small company, take an under 50 employee company. To your point, that's a huge part of the economy. You got to have, I mean, in my mind, you got to have different rules. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's you can't run it and be profitable as a small business with, you know, people. If two or three people leave at once over different issues, you'd be you'd be really harmed as a business agreed agreed
0: i'll just say one more thing on that topic is this you know i had somebody call me and say well uh you know you, you know some of these small businesses don't care about their employees as much as the bigger companies and i i just really just that really upset me i said no i said actually it's complete opposite we we probably care more about our people but we're just trying to survive it's a, it, we're yeah. trying to survive and run the business here it's not because we don't care it, if I say I don't want to pay for a pet leave, that doesn't mean I care less about my employees than Amazon. That doesn't mean that. I just, you know, there's different things at play. And I think the employees that they just haven't run, a, they don't understand cash flow. They don't understand small business. They just, they, they haven't lived it. So they're kind of ignorant to how that works. Uh, and I and some of those things I see, I just I get I get wound up a little bit when I see them in the press.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it's you know, when you're a small business, you're an underdog competing against bigger organizations. Right. And so, yes, it's yes. Not easy. And until you've lived, you know, with having the balance to balance the checkbook and figure out how to make payroll when things go up and down, you know, it, it's it's difficult. So, no, I really. think as a, as a business owner, you, you've been there. I've been there. It's it's a catch 22. You want to have great perks and you want your employees. happy. Sure. Sure. As long as you can make a return and your customers are happy, right? <laughs> exactly. I always tell our, our team, you know, it's three people have to be happy. You know, you got to have your customer happy, your employees have to be happy, and your shareholders. And if you exactly. don't make all three happy, you've got a flawed business model. And so, <laughs> you know, I think some of those things could tilt it where these shareholders, which in small businesses are the owners, if, you know, you could do all that and make no money and, and, and the model doesn't work, the business. That's right. That's, so right. that's
0: right. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's <laughs> Two last questions. Uh, great yeah. stuff. By the way, I could ask you, I could ask you 50 more, but I got two more really quick. Um, yeah. If you could, I think you're four years older than me. Uh, you got your, you got your year of, of college graduation on your LinkedIn. So I'll just tell people, I think you're, I think you're 58, 57. What do you, is it, am I close? That's in that range. <laughs> uh, Cause I graduated college in 85. I graduated 89. Um, by the way, we should do another episode and just talk about the 80s. You have to come back.
1: And
0: talk about that. <laughs> If you could call your 21 year old self coming out of college and give that
1: young man some advice based on what you've learned, what would you tell him today? Now, I'd say, you know, nothing at that age. And you're just starting a learning journey. You know, you come out and you got a college degree. And, you know, I think the world is ahead of you. And there's so much you learn through experience that you open yourself up to all methods of, of expanding yourself. And And, you know, it's easy to look back now where I am and just say, wow, if I knew what I knew. Now, back then, you know, how fast, how much quicker I could have grown my first company, how much more value I could have created had I known, but you don't. And so I think for for young people today, to be able to attach to mentors, to be able to connect to successful people, to pick their brains, um, you know, I think is a blessing. And I think there's a lot of of folks that, you know, certainly willing to give back to speed that up. And and I've had through the years, some mentors that have been good that way that were kind of role models that, you know, I could pick their brain about their journeys and it helped me kind of understand where I wanted to go. So I'd say just realize, you know, nothing, the journey's beginning and learn and read and watch videos and read books and talk to successful people, study business models, you know, see what works and study failures, see what didn't work. And you'll, you'll become, I think, a lot more valuable in the business sense
0: last question if you could put your core purpose in life right now into a sentence at this age at this stage in your
1: career what does that sound like uh well I, that's a that's a tough question i mean core purpose i mean i'd break it in different categories i mean business it's growth and success and it's, you know, creating a place where employees thrive and where shareholders thrive. And that's that's a whole lot of fun. The personal side is just keeping balance. You know, to me, it's balance of family, faith, work and personal enjoyment. And I think certainly, you know, I, I'd put maybe if it it down to one thing is live a balanced life where you're, you know, you're checking all the boxes and don't get so far tilted in one area that you destroy, you know, your your family or, you know, because you pursue work too hard, but same time, you got to pursue work hard enough to provide for your family. So I'd say just find that balance and, you know, it's hard, but, you know, it's possible. Excellent stuff. Larry Hartman,
0: thank you so much for being on the RiderFlex podcast and sharing your
1: story. Congratulations on everything you've built, my friend. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. And congratulations to you as well. And it's great to spend time with you and uh, we'll continue to fight the good fight for talent out there in the world. Let's uh, see if we can make a difference.